start my timer. Good evening. So I have been a practicing doctor for almost 18 years now, and my contention is that the majority of what I see in every single day in my clinical practice is in some way related to our collective modern lifestyles. So just over five years ago, I was in my NHS clinic. It was a Monday afternoon. I was running a little bit late, had about three patients waiting, and I called the next patient in. And a chap called Devon walks in with his mum. He's a 16-year-old boy. And I looked at the computer to see what had been going on. And there was a letter there. Because on the Saturday, Devon had gone to A&E and he had harmed himself. And he was assessed in A&E. And the doctors had thought he was safe to discharge. But they wrote me a letter saying, could you review Devon, and could you start him on antidepressants? Now, something didn't feel right to me, because I sort of knew the family, and I, I felt, you know, this is a pretty well-balanced family who I've been seeing for years. I had no reason to understand why Devon had tried to harm himself. And so I thought, I just can't write him out a prescription without understanding a little bit more about what's going on. So I started to talk to him, and I tried to find out a little bit more about his life. And I was becoming quite alarmed with his use of social media. And it started to concern me that actually his excessive, or what I perceived to be an excessive use of social media, might be impacting his mental health. So I had a chat with him, and I said, look, Devin, I could start you on antidepressants. But actually, I think there's a few things that I've identified that we might be able to help you with. Would you be interested in me helping you to understand how you can reduce your social media usage? I said, do you think this is going to help, Doc? I said, well, look, I don't know for sure, but I think it might make a difference. So we came up with a plan. I said, for the next week, for one hour before bed, can you switch your phone off and not go on social media? That was it. He goes away for a week. He comes back. A week later, I said, how are you doing? He said, well, look, Doc, I'm still not doing great, but something's changed. I'm not quite as up and down in the day. I'm feeling a little bit more stable. I'm sleeping a little bit better. And I said, okay, so something has improved. And so he was open to exploring this a little bit further. And over the next few weeks, we increased that to being for two hours in the morning and two hours in the evening. And bit by bit, Devon's starting to improve. He's not amazing. He's still got a low mood, but he's starting to improve. About six weeks in, I'd come across some research that actually suggested that our diets could impact our mental health. I was very interested in this, so I asked Devon what he was eating. And he was eating very typical diets that many teenagers in this country would eat, lots of sugary junk food, lots of sweet treats, and I explained to him, I said, did you know, Devon, that actually your diet might be playing a role in your moods? He said, really? He genuinely had no idea. I said, the thing is, you tell me you're hungry every two hours and you need to eat. But because of the foods you're eating, because you're on a blood sugar roller coaster all day, when you feel you're hungry, that's not just a hunger issue. That's your blood sugar falling rapidly. At that point, your stress hormones are going to go up, cortisol and adrenaline. 
which in turn will have an impact on your mood hormones. He said, well, what can I do about that? So I drew him a little graph and I said, look, I want you to change your diet. You don't have to make huge changes, but if you can actually take some things like nuts with you to school and snack on those nuts instead of those sweet treats, I think this may start to stabilize your blood sugar. I also said it would be quite handy for you to have a protein-rich breakfast. Anyway, the point is, is that he goes away. I review him a couple of weeks later, and again, he's starting to show a little bit of improvement. I thought I don't see him for a little while. I try and get hold of him. I can't. He doesn't respond to letters. And like many GPs, we just get on with our job, and we can't follow up every single patient that comes in to see us. Six months later, I come into my practice. I'm going through my mail, and there's a letter there, and I open it. It says, Dear Dr. Chatterjee, it was from Devon's mother, and he said, and the, well, the letter said, I just want to thank you for changing his life. He's like a different boy now. He's happy. He's engaged at school. He interacts with friends at the weekends. He's joined local communities. And I know still to this day that that boy, that young man now, is actually doing very well. Now, what's interesting about that for me is that this is a boy who was at a fork in the road. At that point, he could have been labeled with depression. He could have been put on an antidepressant that almost certainly he would have still been on today. Now, again, I am not saying that has no value in some cases. It clearly does. But for this boy, I was able to help him identify what lifestyle factors were contributing to the way that he was feeling. And therefore, he now knows what he has to do and how he can stay healthy long term. There are so many cases like that around the country today. People who I feel are being unnecessarily medicalized, are being over-prescribed drugs for issues that are driven by our collective modern lifestyles. And the big issue today is stress. The World Health Organization calls stress the health epidemic of the 21st century. And as a GP, about 80% of what I see on any given day is in some way related to stress. Does that figure surprise you? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's quite a big figure. I see symptoms every day such as anxiety, fatigue, insomnia, poor memory, inability to concentrate, problems such as low libido, gut problems such as irritable bowel syndrome, and even things like obesity, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, all of these seemingly separate issues actually, at their root cause, have stress as a key driver. But I don't think we're talking enough about stress. We talk about our diets, we talk about going to the gym, but we don't talk about stress. And I think we need to, and this is the main reason I wrote my book, The Stress Solution, is to help people understand where stress lives in the modern world, and then more importantly, what we can all do to actually address it. Now look, in my book, I do cover all kinds of things that you would expect in a book on stress, such as breathing, and meditation, and physical activity, and whether we've got meaning and purpose in our lives. But for the purpose of tonight, I wanted to cover two areas that often don't get spoken about when it comes to stress. The first one is loneliness. 
So loneliness is on the rise in the UK. Some commentators are saying that we're living in a loneliness epidemic at the moment. And actually, when we think about loneliness, we think about the elderly. And of course, there are many elderly people around the country who are struggling with loneliness. But actually, one of the loneliest groups in society are young men aged between 30 and 45. Many of us in here will be familiar that the rates of male suicide are on the rise. And actually, above the age of 30, a lack of close male relationships is strongly correlated with our risk of suicide. Being lonely has physical changes on your body. Recent studies suggest that being lonely is as harmful for your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Does that surprise you? Yeah, so why could that be? Well, on an evolutionary level, a couple of million years ago, when we were in our tribes and, and our communities, if you were left outside from the pack, if you were left by yourself, you were vulnerable to attack. So your body would adapt. Your immune system would go into high alert. Your body would become inflamed in case you got attacked. That same response has been activated for so many of so many of us in the modern world. Professor George Slavich studies something called social genomics at UCLA. And he has shown that if you are rejected in a social situation, within 45 minutes, the expression of your genes changes and you become inflamed. Loneliness is a major stressor on our bodies. And one of the recommendations I make in my new book is to prioritize our friendships. You see, many of us have got friends, but because of social media and because we're so busy, we often don't feel the need to see those friends. We see on Facebook or Instagram what they're doing, holiday snaps, what they're doing with their kids, what they ate for dinner last night, so for many of us, actually, we don't feel the need to see them in real life. But actually, seeing your friends in person is not a luxury for your health. It's an absolute necessity. A few weeks ago, well, a few months ago, I actually had a patient, a 37-year-old chap, um, who was self-employed. He was doing well at work. He was earning good money. He'd work late into the evening. He'd be doing his emails all weekend. And he came to see me saying he was feeling a bit low, lacking in motivation, and actually really worried that he was getting depression. So I spent time talking to him. We had a chat. I did some blood tests. They were all normal. And after a while, it was quite clear to me that actually this was a guy who he was very lucky. He lived in the same village where he grew up. A lot of his friends lived nearby, but he never saw them. So I said, look, for the next few weeks, what I'd love you to do is once a week, I want you to meet one of your friends in person, and when you're with them, put your phones away so you're completely present. He goes away. Six weeks later, I review him. I said, how was it? He said, I feel like a different person. My mood's improved. 
my motivation has improved, my self-esteem is better, and I'm now able to concentrate more at work. I said, what did you do? He said, well, a couple of times, I played five-a-side, but more often than not, on a Sunday morning, we'd go to the local cafe and catch up over a latte. So you see, what that man had, he didn't have depression. Right? He had a deficiency of friendship in his life. When he corrected that friendship deficiency, his problems got better. I could give you countless examples like this, but I really just want to say that friendship is really, really important, and it's something I don't think we're valuing enough, and it's a big stressor on our bodies. Just got a couple of minutes, so I do want to touch briefly on the other area that I don't think we think about enough, and that's passion. So many of us are so busy doing what we need to do day in, day out, we actually forget about what we want to do and what we love to do. But regularly exposing yourself to daily doses of pleasure makes you more resilient to stress. But conversely, if you're chronically stressed, your brain adapts and you find it harder to experience pleasure in everyday things. So I ask all of you, how, when was the last time you experienced a daily dose of pleasure? Many of us do things regularly that we love, but I can tell you many of my patients don't. Many of our patients need me to give them permission to start pursuing their passions. And I've got countless case studies of patients who once they start doing that, even if it's just five minutes a day, could be reading a book, listening to music, going for a walk. It could even be watching your favorite comedian on YouTube for five minutes. But if you give pleasure, if you make pleasure a daily priority in your life, you will become more resilient to stress, you will lower your stress levels, and you will feel better. Stress affects every single one of us these days. I'm talking about stress to each and every single one of my patients. It affects every single organ in our bodies. It affects our short-term health, but it also affects our long-term health. Now, chronic stress is actually thought to be one of the key drivers of developing Alzheimer's disease. So I'd like to leave you with a thought, which is, where does stress live in your life? Did any of the strategies that I talked about tonight resonate with you? And if they did, what change can you make in that part of your life tomorrow? Because it's small changes that have big impacts. And I can tell you from my clinical experience that actually when you make managing stress a priority, not only do your stress levels go down, but actually you start to live calmer and happier lives. Thank you.